Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what could the next liberal leader do to succeed? Interesting op-ed piece that we're going to talk about. And we discuss an article in the Toronto Star about the Ford government's education playbook and its downfalls. The author of that op-ed, Stephen Reed, an assistant prof at Queen's University, will join us. And what can we expect from clean hydrogen in Canada? It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another candidate for the Ontario Liberal Leadership announces, uh, a gentleman that was ahead on the show just a, a little while ago, uh, Ted Shu, and he's going to join us a little bit later on this hour uh, to talk about his candidacy. And it's, it's started to heat up, uh, that, of course, being the Liberal Leadership race here in the province of Ontario. Uh, the perceived frontrunner, I guess, at this stage is, is uh, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie. Uh, just the other day, she sat down with Global's uh, Queen Park Bureau Chief, Colin DeMello, and, and Colin asked why Ontarians should really consider her for the job. I believe in a fair and inclusive Ontario that includes everyone. I think I'm differentiated from the other individuals who are candidates in this race because I actually have governing experience. I have strong experience leadership. I have a track record of being mayor for almost nine years and a city councillor before that and a member of parliament before that. There will be others in the race as well. Now, I know some people are rather cynical and simply say, well, who would even want the job, for heaven's sakes? This is a party that seems to be wandering in the wasteland these days. They don't even know who they are. They're in third place, barely, uh, right now. Uh, and, you know, what, what are the prospects of success? Well, it has happened where political parties have gone from third to first. Not that often, but uh, there was an interesting op-ed piece in the Toronto Star a couple of days ago that, uh, that may paint a roadmap for that. Uh, and it was written by our next guest. Uh, he is Jamie Watt, who is the executive chairman of Navigator. Jamie is a guy who's been in the political arena for quite some time, and he knows the ins and outs of it. And it's a pretty insightful piece called What the Next Ontario Liberal Leader Needs to Succeed. And Jamie joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Jamie, great to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for inviting me back, Bill. It's interesting here. This is not really just a here's how to win this leadership. I mean, it, there's a, some historical perspective here, and 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 some I just I guess really some parameters uh, that the liberals should be looking for here. And and you talk about those, and you sent three basic points here uh, that need to happen for the, these guys to be successful. And uh, it's it's a daunting task, but I guess not an impossible task, is it? Well, it's not an impossible task. You know, we have to look just recently at Mr. Trudeau. He went from third place to first place. And he had a strategy go from third to second, second to first. He did all in one election. And of course, Mike Harris did the same thing. It's getting mm -hmm. to be an old story. Uh, since I was there, I promised myself I wouldn't stop. I'd stop using those outdated analogies <laughs> or references. But, you know, we went from we didn't have party status, not even party status, Bill. And we went from there to a sweeping majority government. And in the second one and changed Ontario. So, I mean, I think these things can happen. And, you know, the thing about politics is that everyone tries to market time and get it just right. And they say, well, can you market time your real estate portfolio? Can you, or your house? Can you market time your, your stock portfolio? Of course not. If we did, we'd all live in better houses. We'd all have more money in the bank. Can't market time politics either. So what you got to do is this. Have a plan. Got to believe in something. Got to put your head down. Got to work as hard as you possibly can. And then the other happen or it won't. But and, and as you point out in the piece, and, and Harris and, and even you know Trudeau, I guess are, are examples of this. Uh, first of all, you have to convince people that the change is needed, and and uh, and maybe as you point out, I thought this was a, a very important aspect of what you were saying. Uh, they've tried to do that with Doug Ford in the last couple of elections, and and they failed to prove that change was needed, which is why he he won majority governments, so even a bigger one the second time around. If that message doesn't resonate, the rest of it kind of falls flat, doesn't it? 
Well, it does. And that's one of the, you know, that's definitely why I say in my piece, it's job one. One of the interesting things, of course, is that all the things that are working for driving change in Ottawa, why Mr. Poliev is having success in saying it's enough already, those same economic factors are at play in Ontario. And so far, they haven't hurt uh, Premier Ford in the way they're bedeviling uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. So that's going to be the first, uh, you know, the first thing they really, um, they really have to get at. And, and as you say, the groundwork may already be in play for that because there are some rough economic times. And uh, and as you, you say, Premier before is not wearing it, uh, and not yet anyway. Who knows what's going to happen down the road in situations like this. Uh, but once you do that, and okay, we need change. It's time for change. And we've heard how, how many politicians have used that almost as their mantra these days. The most important thing after you get them to do that, and that's a, a d- difficult enough task, is you have to convince them that you're the change that's needed. Well, exactly. Remember, we have a three-party system, not a two-party system. Well, a multiple-party system. I guess we have the Greens as well, but it's, essentially we have a three-party system. I'm going to get people being cranky with me for saying that, but so, so <laughs> you know, and people compare ourselves. They look to America, you know, where it's one either or, you know, one goes up, the other goes down, you know, one goes forward, the other one goes back. Well, that's not so in our system because, you know, everybody could be, you know, hopping mad at Doug Ford and want change and they could go to the NDP and not to the Liberals. Remember, as you pointed out when you started uh, this segment of your program this morning, the Liberals are in third, not second. So the first thing the job the job the Liberals got to do is they got to say, okay, everybody, time for a change. Then they got to say, it's us, it's us, it's us. You know, not somebody, um, not oh, do all that work because if you don't get it right, you do all that work and everybody goes to the NDP and then you've lost, you know, you've lost doubly. So that's that's the important task to say, yeah, this is this is where the change has to come. Uh, and I think that's where the mur- the waters get a little bit murky here in Ontario anyway, uh, because I think, for instance, in the last couple of elections, and especially I, th- I think the maybe the last two, yeah, the Liberals, uh, when they say we're the change, I think a lot of Ontario voters looked at it and said, we, we don't know who you are. I don't think you know who you are. Uh, Kathleen Wynne had, had changed this party significantly from the traditional liberal approach to politics. And, the, and, and kind of, as some people were saying, she, you know, she out-NDP'd the NDP. And, and most voters were saying, well, wait a second, is that the kind of change we want? Well, exactly. But that's also why the leadership race is such a great advantage, right? That's why exactly why you want a robust leadership race with lots of contestants, with lots of ideas galvanizing the public's imagination they're hard on the party because you're fighting with your friends but they're good for a party because they sharpen your skills and they get you ready for an election campaign you know, we look at coronations you know like mr ignatius and people like that it's a disaster when they don't actually run and scrap for it i mean lots and lots of evidence that the harder fought the uh the uh, leadership race the better the, the leader is prepared to fight in the election coming up and, and and of course in politics in canada and not criticism of you bill but you know the media only know how to cover one thing the leader they don't know how to cover it it's just not true and so these are all leader dominated leader centered campaigns and so the leader is the vessel by which you you know get your message out and so the leader's the personification think of the leaders like a human sandwich board right and so this is an opportunity for them to choose a, a dynamic leader, exciting leader, a leader that's going to take them somewhere, have something to say, have a North Star, clear vision, an alternative to Mr. Mr. Ford and to the ND styles uh, of the NDP. So um, I think, you know, they've got some very interesting uh, candidates on offer. I write about three, but of course there'll be many more. You know, yeah. I think uh, Naderson Smith, you know, he is a well-respected uh, member and, uh, 
he has bring would bring you know a lot to uh, to the race. Uh, certainly, he would move the party, as I understand it. Not my tribe, but as I understand it, to the left. We've got uh, Yasser Nakvi, who, uh, as we know, was the Attorney General here in Ontario. So he's been elected as an MPP. He's now an MP. And he's um, got all kinds of interesting things to say. He says it, and he doesn't really think there should be, you know, this, you know, back and forth, right and left thing. He wants more of a back to basics approach. And then, of course, we have Mayor Crombie, who uh, is, you know, one terrific uh, retail politician, and not just a retail politician. I don't say that to be demonized. So she's, as um, she said in that clip you played, a lot of administrative experience as well. And uh, she's calling for more of a, you know, center, center right. Um, approach to to winning power and being successful so there are the beginning of three really good different um candidates who will put different things on offer and voters will have a choice they'll say yes or they'll say no and um you know at the end of the day i think they'll get a stronger leader out of it the other thing i'd say and then um stop talking you might ask me questions and not just have me talk but <laughs> the last thing I would say is that, you know, people say, oh, the Liberals are dead, they're finished, they're out, they're not That's complete nonsense. Um, the, Ontario has lots of muscle memory. Canada has lots of muscle memory. You know, when the Conservatives were down to two seats, everyone said that was over. That is insane. It wasn't over. So as a result of some crazy votes. But, so they deserve to be booted out 100%, but not two. Right? So these well, we happen. saw that federally, though, didn't we, Jamie? I mean, you know, when, when, when the Mulroney, well, I guess it was King Campbell by that stage, uh, essentially got wiped off the map. Uh, and everybody they came said, back and won a majority government. Yeah, this is, you know, this is the death of the Conservative Party. No, it wasn't. Uh, it's, it, it really depends on what you do with that and, and what you come up with, and which is going to segue right into the next question I wanted to ask you. And it, it deals with, for instance, that election specifically. Uh, and, and, of course, what happened in 1995 with the common sense revolution talk to me about and i hate to use the word because people think oh this just means you know this they're all no substance charisma the leader has to have some sense of charisma uh you know mike harris was was every man he was the sort of guy that you wanted to sit down tim hortons and have a coffee with and uh you know when he was campaigning before the election was actually called he used to come into the radio station what our fm station here and he was on about once a week and uh you know he just shoot the breeze talking about common sense issues and things of this nature and it there was a, a a bond i think between people and and the way harris presented himself and on top of that of course you guys had the policy you had the, the, you know, the common sense revolution book uh so yeah hey you want to know details about that read the book and, and you want to talk with me about this you could do that uh trudeau had that charisma too um uh, uh, as to whether or not there's a whole lot of substance in the policy that's another debate we can have but it seems to me in politics in the 21st century the leader has to have something that that people can gravitate to and uh, you know, when, when Del Duca took over from, from Kathleen Wynne, uh, I'm sure Mr. Del Duca is a fine man, but he just doesn't seem to resonate with people. You've got to have that 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 it factor, I think, to, to be successful in politics. Not exclusively, but that has to be in there, doesn't it? Well, and I would say Mike Harris did have a charisma. It's just a different Yeah, he did. Right? Like some people have like a movie star charisma. Mike Harris had the charisma of, you know, the mayor of the small town, you know, who organized the Rotary Club and worked hard, you know, and you know, all those kinds of small town values, which are very attractive. So back to my earlier point where where we are in a leader-centered world, whether we like it or not, that's the world we're in. So we ought, we ought not to complain about it. We ought to solve for it and we ought to organize ourselves that way. And so, yes, your leader is the vessel through whom you're going to get your message out. They're the human sandwich board. 
And so I don't understand why they can't learn to cut their hair and you know, get a proper suit. Are people voting for people <laughs> who have nice haircuts and proper suits? No. But if they don't, then they're a distraction. People are talking about that and not their bloody policy. And so I, this is one of the things that's important is these for these people to come forward um, and to have a chance to talk about their policies, to get that excitement, to get that charisma, and to um, you know, be able to... Um, distill the complicated things that they want to talk about into a way that they can get across. You know, it's it's it's, it's like I raise a lot of money for charitable causes and people say, oh, how do you, what, if you have an exciting concept and you put it in front of a motivated donor by a volunteer with lots of enthusiasm, you're going to win. And it's the same in politics, you know, we just have to have a policies that are in tune with the times that are helping people do better today than they did yesterday or we can do a little bit better tomorrow making sure their parents are well looked after, there's health care for everyone, that we're moving ahead in this world, this incredibly competitive world. We're chasing away the bad guys who are trying to spy on us and do all sorts of terrible things. And and just do better for everybody. And you know, if you get that message out, I think I think in Ontario you're gonna do just fine. Now, you're gonna have to come across Doug, and that's an issue, right? Because he's pretty good at that. In fact, that's exactly what he's really good at. That's so how we got elected. The liberals will be if you've got that guy who says you know, well, what, what do you mean you're, you're, you know, you need your driveway shoveled? I'll be right there myself. Um, you got to figure out how to beat that guy, right? Because Doug has got incredible charisma, incredible charisma. And uh, you got to find a way to, uh, you know, beat around that. Because, you know, in politics, you can't have a little column A, a little column B, right? It's uh, got to pick one or the other. And so I think there's work to do. But this idea that the liberals are finished and they should subsume themselves to the NDP, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the word which starts with an H and then has an S in it on your radio station, but you can imagine. <laughs> what I think I know where you're going here. <laughs> and that's, the, that's the word that it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. But but the element here is, is like you say, it's, it's relatability. And, you know, I mentioned on the show a little while ago, I mean, you know, six months before the last provincial election, there were those critics that were saying Doug Ford's dead in the water. You know, his, his approval ratings were, were down in the dumps. Uh, people were complaining about the way he handled the pandemic, the, the way coming out of the pandemic, yada, 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 yada. Uh, yet all of a sudden, this guy kicks it into gear, and he is the first conservative leader in Ontario, I, I think in the longest time, that all of a sudden he's got photo ops with union leaders. I mean, how often does that happen? But he has that that ability to try to attract those people, the, you know, the the the, the Mancinelli's from Leuna and 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 Unifor and people like that. I mean, there's a, there's a something to this on a one-to-one basis that that matters, I guess, to people. And that's the sort of thing I think that draws them back into it. As cynical as they are about politics, somebody that's got that charisma and that relatability, that one-to-one thing, what was the old thing they used to use about Mike Harris? You know, he's the sort of guy you'd either want to sit down and Tim Hortons with or have a beer with at the end of the day and just shoot the breeze. That that matters to people. But, you know, um, for example, these things also flip because we had Mr. Harper and then we had Justin and his charisma and his sunny ways. And, you know, everybody thought that was lovely and wanted to vote for that. Now they're fed up with sunny ways. And what do they want? They want Mr. Poliev, right, who is... Um, a lot of them, I'm saying everybody, but Mr. Poliev is, is eating into that with his own charisma, right? Who would have ever thought Skippy would have had charisma, you know, back many, many years ago? And here's a man who's developed tremendous charisma as leader. And as he moves forward, he's having a real opportunity to present, you know, his views because, um, you know, they, 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 they're, 
you know, they've got residents now in this time, right? So things have changed and uh, those have changed with them. It's a fascinating, thought-provoking piece and uh, and very much something that we have to keep in mind here is this leadership thing for the Liberals uh, continues, but the, the political dynamic federally and provincially too. Jamie, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciated the conversation. Always happy to join you. Thanks for calling. Take care. Jamie Watt, who is the executive chairman of Navigator, who's been through the, the, the wars with a number of these campaigns over the years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the education system. Always one of the most important aspects of, of our uh, political realm here, especially in the province of Ontario. And, and for many, many years, uh, this province was, was a leader when it came to education, very forward thinking in so many different ways. Uh, not so sure that's the case anymore. Uh, there are so many facets to this, and uh, there's the there's the curricula certainly that's going on. There's the the approach that this government and the ministry is taking towards this, and and the lack of some very very important programs. One that doesn't ever seem to get a whole lot of attention here uh, that advocacy groups and teachers have talked about, of course, is is a free breakfast and lunch program. Emily Jureski has some details for us. In a letter to Education Minister Stephen Lecce and Children Minister Michael Parsa today, the collection of organizations say many children in Ontario are facing food insecurity. The group say Ontario should provide a universal free school breakfast and lunch program to all students and guarantee that schools have the ability and funding to deliver the meals. Feed Ontario said in a report in November that 587,000 adults and children visited the province's food banks, a total of 4.3 million times between April 2021 and March 2022. It says about 30% of food bank clients were under the age of 18. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. I also just found out that apparently here in Canada, this is not just an Ontario problem, but a nationwide problem. Uh, we are the only G7 nation that does not have a program like that for our, our education systems, which is embarrassing, quite frankly, here in the 21st century. Because as we've talked about, listen, if, if kids don't have proper food, if they don't eat breakfast, if they don't have proper nutrition, they can't learn which is maybe, maybe somebody at the education ministry might just figure out that maybe that's one of the reasons why the, 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 the EQA tests year and year and year out have so many different areas of concern here. But that seems to be an overall concern about the way this province is now looking at education. And there's an interesting op-ed piece that, uh, that appeared in the Toronto Star a couple of days ago uh, entitled The Ford Government's Education Playbook, Manifest a Crisis, Ignore Research, and Abandon Educators. Sounds harsh, I know. But there's a strong, strong sense of reality to, to that title. Uh, the author of the piece is Stephen Reed. He is an assistant professor at Queen's University and teaches graduate students, master and doctoral at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Joining us here on the Bill Galley Show to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, and thank you for writing the piece. Uh, I think it, it's very poignant. And I think it uh, covers a, a, an awful lot of very important points about what's wrong with our education system and what could be right with it. Thanks so much, uh, Bill. It's it's uh, it's difficult to get what you want to say down to 725 words. Uh, but what I was doing was really looking at the actions of the government and then really trying to backward engineer and, and determine what are the beliefs and the intentions of the government. And just as you said, what I'm seeing is that the government is either ignoring data or weaponizing uh, its own agencies provides it with research, which it ignores, the government ignores, really to push misleading policies. Um, and 
what I'm seeing is a government that is looking to destabilize public education. And, and, and I would say in time, looking at shifting monies from publicly funded schools to the private school system. And we've seen that uh, in the past with the PCs. Uh, back in 1995, Premier Harris at the time and Education Minister Snowblin, their common sense re revolution saying they needed to create a crisis in education to get what they needed done in education. And we're seeing that again with Ford and Lecce coming out strong and identifying using EQAO data inaccurately to say we have a problem. And so they came out strong and said, you know what, our students, they can't even do the basics of mathematics. And so EQAO, the Education Quality and Accountability Office at the time, they put out a document that looked at three years of grade three and six students data. That's about 745,000 students. And what it clearly said is that actually our students in Ontario have a, a, a good understanding of the fundamentals of math skills. They have the basics. Where they're falling down is the ability to apply math knowledge and actually think critically. And so the whole premise of moving forward with a, a new curriculum was faulty. And, and so what we see is a government that's willing to use that, that data inaccurately, even when their own agency identifies that no, that's inaccurate. And so then we see a government that's, you know, going to move forward with a, a new curriculum, a new math curriculum in 2020. That's wonderful because we've been asking for a new curriculum for years. The old curriculum was 2005. But the government, the, the PCs, through Lache, decide that they're going to introduce the new curriculum in 2020. And you have to remember, we're in the midst of the pandemic. And unlike other curriculums that would have come forward in past years that would have given teachers a year to continue with the old curriculum, look at the new curriculum, and then myself at faculties of education, I can develop you know, new lessons and, and understandings with the teacher, the pre-service teachers that are gonna be going into teaching the next year, but none of that was done. So our teachers in the midst of the pandemic had to learn a new curriculum immediately provide it to students. And then very shortly thereafter, again, the government comes out and says, we're gonna be moving forward with EQO testing in the midst of the pandemic. So for me, once again, the government is demonstrating that they don't value educators. They don't value the system. And what they were looking to do was to get a, a piece of data so that they could say, see, mathematics scores are low. Well, I could have told you the mathematics scores were going to go down. We saw that around the world. We saw that in New York. We saw that in the UK. They were going to go down in Ontario. Absolutely for sure they were, especially when you provide no support for a curriculum. Because you have to think about grade six students. They, are, they had new, uh, new strands or new substrands, such as coding. And so they're being assessed as if they had been doing coding since grade one. But they hadn't. They've been doing it for potentially two years. So how again, did we get to this point, though, really Stephen? I guess that's the overriding looking question. Looking at, sorry, 
I said, how did we get to this point? I mean, this is a province, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the conversation, uh, that that was known for for its, its education and dedication to education. Uh, you know, Bill Davis, a, a great education minister, John Robarts even before him. Uh, Dalton McGinty tried to portray himself as an edu- the education premier and 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 moved in that regard. I, I've been doing this long enough now. I, I remember you know going through the Hall Dennis report way back when. Uh, Charles Pascal has been a guest on the show many times, talking about what we need to do and making it. A student-centric education system. Now we seem to be at the stage where this government uh, is basically coming to a conclusion and then working of what they want to do and then working backwards to try to justify it. Exactly, that's what they're attempting to do. And so it, it's really about, uh, it, for me, it's about oppression because uh, you know I'm looking at ill-informed policy that actually is oppressive policy. And so, for example, we could go to the math proficiency test, and it sounds like. You know, why wouldn't we want all our teachers to to know a certain level of mathematics? And I agree with that, but there's ways to do that, and it's not through a test. And so again, EQAO came forward with a literature review and warned the government, warned Lecce, warned Ford, that if you move forward with a math proficiency test, you are not going to realize, you most likely will not realize the positive benefits. There's very few little research out there that identifies that it will actually support student achievement. However, what it will do is actually push away marginalized teaching from the profession. So that's oppression. And even with that literature view, that was disregarded. And right now we have a government that is protecting itself because even that document cannot be found on EQAO website, cannot be found on the ministry website. You have to go to People for Education, another supporter of of education to get that report. So we have a government that's willing to hide research, distort data, all to push what they want to see in the final end. And we have, you mentioned great names like Charles Pascal, who I, I think of fondly, who recently mm-hmm. passed away, but and then other giants in Ontario. Uh, for example, we had Carol Campbell, Jean Clinton, Michael Fullen, Andy Hargrave, Kahana Kokwas, uh, Diane Longboat, all recommending to the government through the Ontario Learning, uh, Learning Province to either dismantle EQAO altogether or to really change the process. And this government was the only government that, st- that said they were going to move forward with a status quo, that they were going to quote unquote modernize the assessment. And we haven't seen that at all. All we've seen is a government that's willing to move forward with uh, the EQAO assessment, even during the pandemic, when many organizations and boards, including myself, asked EQAO and the government, please do not move forward. We have educators and students that are hanging from a thread, just trying to get through, and you're going to put this extra pressure. Uh, so yes, uh, I actually absolutely agree. We had better times. We had governments that were willing to listen. You mentioned McGinty. I lived through those days. That was a day where there was energy in the province. The government valued educators. They were bringing educators to the tables, leaders to the tables. They were investigating research. They were coming forward with a strategy that made sense, that said, over the next period of time, you're going to be able to spend this much money on your professional learning. And so boards could actually engage in developing strategies. Right now, this government actually just comes up with policy and it's announced at the last minute, like the new curriculum that's coming out for language. Is it been? Has it been released yet? Well, it's not yet June. That's what this government likes to do. Put it out in June, 
have it start in September with no support. And this new language curriculum, I, I would imagine, is going to be extremely different uh, with respect to some of the research, for example, from Right to Read. So uh, new curriculum, all good, but it has to come with intensive supports because we're asking some of our educators to shift this. Because like I am a math educator. That's what I really love to do. And when I have teacher candidates come in, many of them already have anxiety. And so what I am trying to do is trying to have them reconceptualize mathematics, relearn mathematics so that they can go into classrooms and have fun with students with mathematics so that mathematics isn't seen as, oh, I can't stand that subject. I'm not a math person. Every student can be a math person. And this government is not realizing that. Well, I, do, I think that this is a government message, that though? says I, we don't care about necessarily about mathematics because you know what? You can just go. You, if you're not a math person, you just can go into work. Don't worry about going into university. Just go into the workforce. Nothing wrong with going into the workforce, but students must be provided with opportunities to do anything they want, regardless of their identity. And that's not what we're seeing from this government. Well, and and I, I'm hardly a math genius. It was never my strong suit. I, I, I mean, we have a daughter that says, you know, I heart you know, algebra, but you know, it's it's a it's a passion for some people because it, they they learn them and they take it to the next step. And that's what I think is missing here. And I think you just described it very well, and you did in the piece in the Star. Uh, it's not just memorizing formula and or, or times tables. I mean, to take it to the most elementary level, it's moving to the next step, which is critical thinking. How do you apply that? Uh, and usually when the McGinney government, for instance, uh, tried to do that, uh, they relied on, on the Charles Pascals and the Dr. Gene Clintons and people and said, OK, let's let's talk about this. Uh, give us a path forward, at least give us some suggestions. I don't know where the consultation, if there is any consultation, is happening now. Consultation right now for this government is basically we have something ready to go. It's basically laminated. Here it is. Put it out. Or a lot of what was happening, I know a lot of what was happening will be last minute. Well, here the education system, directors of education, chairs of boards of education do not hear certain information until they hear it in the newspaper. That is not a government that values its, its people that are supporting publicly funded education. So they're just, they're not bringing people to the table. We have certain tables that are, the ministry is, the government is bringing together, but they're not bringing the, the, the juicy topics to the table. What's being brought is very late. Um, and so, you know, that would be something that the, the government would have to identify. Here is how we, we communicate and, and we get feedback from experts in the field because we're just not seeing that right now. But there's a, a philosophical bent here to what's going on. I've only got about a minute left, but I really want to get your read on this because we saw it happen, happen rather in the healthcare system here in this province, uh, where you know policies are enacted. Uh, the policies are not the ones we need. They they start to fail. The system starts to crumble, and in that, invariably, what happens is the government turns around and says, "You know what? We're going to have to rely on the private sector to do this. Uh, we just can't get it done with with the publicly funded system." And that's where we're going with Ontario healthcare right now. Do you see the same thing happening with education? Yeah, unfortunately, we did see that in the past uh, for the PCs. We saw them coming forward with it was called the Equity and Education Tax Credit. Yeah. Uh, just a, a wonderful title for something that it actually is not because it promoted really a two-tiered education system. And that's what I'm seeing right now. We're just in that initial stage rumble the system so it desperately needs something new and what you provide is for example tutoring math tutoring and that's what the province came out with 
after the pandemic, are, are you serious? That's what you're coming out with. New curriculums, no resources. And you're going to say, where is the solution? The, so the solution is outside of the classroom. If you start setting up so that parents and $200 a year is going to make a difference for someone who is struggling to put food on the table. And you just no. mentioned that at the top of the of this program, right? Food insecurity is huge. And so if parents have if parents and students have food insecurity, they're not going to be able to take $200 for an entire year and use that for tutoring. It's just for the rich who are already accessing. And so the, I absolutely, I would agree that what we are seeing within the health system, we're seeing the canaries and the, the mine shaft are saying, we have trouble, we need support. And so we need a government that will actually stand up for education. It's a fascinating piece, uh, and you can check it out on the Toronto Star webpage. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, writing it, and thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Awesome. Thanks so much. And I want to give a thank, uh, uh, shout out to Dr. Mary Reed, who also helped with the article. Thank you. Okay. That's uh, Professor Stephen Reed uh, from Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talk about alternative fuels, and I, I know that the, the thing right now is, is about EVs, electric vehicles, electric-powered cars, trucks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and the governments all seem to be putting their eggs in that basket. Uh, but what about what about hydrogen? And hydrogen has been talked about for a long, long time, and uh, there was some talk that that may be the alternative to combustion engines at some point, uh, but it just doesn't seem to have had the same punch behind it over the next little while. So what can we expect from, from clean hydrogen in Canada? And, and does it have a role to play going forward here? I want to bring that up to our next guest. He is Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. Good to have you with us again. Good morning, Bill. You, you, you know, by have been around the, the track a couple of times. We've heard all the discussions about uh, alternative fuels, and this is the one that's going to save us. We have to get off this, and we have to reduce our carbon footprint. Does hydrogen have a role to play here going forward? I think it does. And and I first off, I don't consult any of these companies directly or indirectly. I don't have any financial incentives um, or investments of any kind. I'm not in a conflict of interest. Um, I've looked at this because I'm fascinated by this subject and uh, the the whole subject of, uh, you know, the electrification of everything that is being advocated by many, starting with Mr. Gibo, the uh, the energy minister, yeah. environment minister, excuse me, uh, in the government of Canada. I'm let me just very quickly tell you why I'm more skeptical than most people are about electric, not because I don't believe in electricity. Obviously, everybody uses electricity. I'm talking to you right now on my desktop computer, yep. which is running with electricity. So this is a denial of electricity. But when you talk right now, people don't realize this. And this is data straight out of Natural Resources Canada. And it's typical with the rest of the uh, developed countries, the high income countries. Electricity is about 20% of the totality of all energy used in Canada. Now it's a very important 20%, all our electricity, our lights and air conditioning and the fans on the, on the oil uh, furnace or the gas furnace and so forth are all fueled by that, but it's only 20% of the total. The vast majority of energy in Canada to this day as I speak, and at US and Europe and elsewhere, are fossil fuels, uh, mm -hmm. oil, natural gas for transportation. You know, you, we don't have electric airplanes. They run on jet fuel. Uh, you know, those trucks running down the highways are all running on diesel. And all those high-rise buildings and homes are overwhelmingly heated with natural gas and oil. Where am I going with this very quickly? Is that to ramp up and Natural Resources Canada estimates they're talking, they've suggested a three to four fold increase 
uh, in electricity to to electrify everything. This means that we're going to have to build gargantuan numbers of new high voltage transmission lines that everybody hates. We're going to have to, as NRCAN says on their website right now, it's going to require very large investments in nuclear, which many people don't like, or hydroelectric, which means damming more rivers, which many people don't like because it disrupts the environment. There's no free lunch is what I'm saying. And and then the cost of changing every home and every building uh, to convert from oil or natural gas to electric is just, it's staggering. And so what I'm trying to say is the barriers to the electrification of everything are, are stunning. Now let me turn to hydrogen. And I read a wonderful paper uh, coming out of the UK very recently saying, acknowledging that right now it's not commercially viable. And I'll get to that in one moment, Bill. But he okay. was saying, this person writing this paper, who was an energy engineer, by the way, said the one intriguing thing about hydrogen is it can use the existing infrastructure of oil and, and natural gas pipelines and fueling restations all across the country. It only requires minor modifications. Okay, some of your listeners may be saying, okay, if that's so hot damn, then why aren't we using it? And the answer is, uh, and I don't want to say it's simple, it's that it is still not competitive. It is still more expensive than other alternatives. And now one more quick distinction. There's green hydrogen, which means it's only produced. You have to use a lot of energy to produce hydrogen, to break the H from the 2O. You know, water is hydrogen and, and, and oxygen. So to break that apart, you need a lot of energy. And so if you use green energy, it's really expensive to produce green hydrogen. However, if you use natural gas, you can then create blue hydrogen, which is much cheaper. But of course, people say, starting with environmentalists, no, 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 a blue hydrogen is not good because you're using a fossil fuel to produce it. My, I want to throw this out to you, Bill. I think that we're going to, and the European Union is very optimistic on this, no less than the president of the European Union. They're suggesting it's going to be viable by 2030 which is only what, six years away, six and a half years away. The the engineers are trying to drive down the cost curve to use the language of business schools. Uh, the cost per, per liter is too expensive right now. It's not economic. But just because it's not economic today doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to figure out how to drive down the cost curve as every other industry has done. You think back to the very first PCs and laptops, they were frightfully expensive and then they got cheaper and cheaper. Same with large screen TVs, same with cell phones. Okay, whenever a new technology comes along, even an energy technology, you have, it takes a while to you know understand it and how to, how to maximize it or minimize its cost structure. So this is all by way of saying that if, if they can, and I don't know if they can, I'm not predicting it, but if they can drive down the cost curve, and make hydrogen, drive it down so that it is very clean, completely green, and as cheap as gasoline or cheaper, I would suggest respectfully to everybody that it will defeat electric, electric cars and electric everything, because the costs involved facing all of us to electrify everything are in the trillions, not the billions. Now that's for all of society, to retrofit every building in the country, rip out all the natural gas furnaces and all the houses like mine or the oil furnaces or the propane tanks and the propane furnaces for those in the rural and you know electrify the trucks i don't know how we're going to do it you know those 18 wheel trucks whereas hydrogen can do it we've had hydrogen 
experimental hydrogen buses and trucks around for probably 20, 30 years. The only thing is, as I said, they're not economic. So let's drive down the cost curve if it's possible. And I could see hydrogen winning and beating out electric in the next 10 years because of the enormous costs to electrify everything. Okay, a couple of questions on that. Now, I don't disagree with you. Going through the archives, I saw a, a, a video, actually, Jack Nicholson promoting a hydrogen car. This is 1978. Uh, and, oh, isn't that kind of cute? That's kind of neat. And it, it may well be the future. But is there a will to do that? And the reason I'm asking that is you and I have talked about the political realities of this yeah. uh, and, and when it comes to energy conversion. Uh, this government, our federal government, most provincial governments, most governments around the world are, are just jumping up and down about electric and saying this is the way yes, it's going to yes. be. Are, are they going to finance and are they going to support uh, the, the work that needs to be done uh, to, to bring hydrogen into the fold and make this an alternative? Or are they simply going to say that's counterproductive to where we've spent all our money? Bill, that's, that is the question. That is the single most important question. And the European Union and the U.S. government and the Canadian government are already spending money. Now, you could argue they're not spending enough, and I won't get into that. I don't know how much quote is enough. Maybe they should spend more, but they are already investing in it. But that's not even my answer to your, to your excellent question. My answer is that my response, not answer, but my response is this. To get down to that last, right now, Gibo, Minister Gibo is saying, we got to electrify, excuse me, completely green the electrical grid in Canada. I've already mentioned to you that the grid, a totality of electricity is about 20% of total energy. And I don't want to overwhelm people with numbers, but right now in Ontario, we're doing phenomenally well. I believe it's 82% of electricity produced in Ontario is already green because it's produced by hydroelectric dams on our rivers like Niagara Falls and by nuclear. However, and here is the big thing that's going to smack everybody on the side of the head endlessly to get that final. And this is just the electrical component of these of society to get to that final to go to 100 percent green. And Natural Resource Canada has a wonderful paper on their website, which I read this morning, saying exactly this to get to 100 percent green of just the grid. We have to go to nuclear or hydroelectric because you can't have 100% solar and wind because they're unreliable. They're too intermittent to use the buzzword. Okay. And so you need backup systems and that's just for the electrical grid. And we haven't talked about, as I said, the other 80% of the rest of society that's using oil and diesel and jet fuel and so forth. So my point is as these politicians everywhere, not just Canada, everywhere, start to, it dawns on them. Oh my God, we've got to make, create another 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 Darlingtons. Or we've got to dam up every river that's running in North America. And, and we're going to discover that the blowback from environmental groups and others who are going to say, look, I don't want a nuclear power plant on the edge of every Canadian city. You know, and I don't want to have high voltage transmission lines running in because we think they cause cancer. So as the people start to understand the cost, and I don't just mean the money cost, but the environmental cost of electrification of everything, that it's going to require, as I said, massive increases in nuclear, massive increases in hydroelectric, um, then people are going to start to say, I didn't realize that. I don't like that. 
what other alternative is there that doesn't impose those kinds of societal costs on us? And that's where I think hydrogen is going to come uh, to the fore. Because as I said, it's all, it can use the existing infrastructure of all the oil and gas pipelines, which we've been building in Canada. I looked it up since 1850. Our oil and gas infrastructure is 150 years old and is there already in the ground or sitting on the ground. And so I'm saying if we can drive, if they can make a breakthrough on hydrogen, I think it's a winner from a financial point of view and a societal impact point of view. But that's the $66 million question. Can they make it drive down the cost curve to make it um, price com uh, competitive? Because the alternative to going to electrification, people don't yet realize how staggering are the costs to, and, and, and Natural Resources Canada has spelled it out. We need many, many, many more nuclear reactors and many, many more rivers dammed and not too many people like either of those. Well, and as I say, the political reality, maybe I'm just being too cynical, but I mean, I'm, I've, I've been seeing this happen for generations, as you have. Uh, the oil and gas industry has a very strong lobby in Washington and, and in London and, and in other capitals. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom is that they, with, they, they, they blocked a number of attempts for these alternative fuels because it would have impacted their pocketbooks. Now, they pretty much have acquiesced and understood that, okay, this is the reality. But will the EV industry have that same kind of lobbying power to say, you know, Mr. Trudeau, you know what you just put into that plant in, 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 in St. Thomas? You know what you just did here in Windsor or Stellantis? Now you're going to abandon that and start going to an alternative fuel? Come on, give your head a shake. But the uh, Bill, I, I understand that those arguments, I certainly do. But what I'm saying is that as we go forward, all of us, not just the politicians, but individuals. And let me be very concrete and bring it right down to Hamilton. So they sure. say, OK, we're going 100 percent electrification of everything. Oh, by the way, citizens of Hamilton, we're going to have to build a nuclear power plant on the edge of Hamilton. And this and some people come back and they the, who don't know what they're talking about. And they say, oh, we'll just do all solar and wind. There, I have read enough studies by energy and um, um, uh, engineers, and you cannot, I've even read some by some environmentalists in the States, and they said you cannot build a an energy system that is 100% wind and solar because it's too variable and you need a backup. And whether you call it nuclear or natural gas generators or whether you call it hydroelectric, it doesn't matter. And so as a result, we are, if we want to go down the electrification road, we're going to have to build an incredible, we haven't built a nuclear reactor in Canada for 30 years. And we're gonna have to build multiple nuclear reactors. And we're gonna have to build and dam multiple lands, rivers. And, and I think that indigenous peoples on First Nations reserves are going to have an awful lot to say about that. And it's not going to be yes. So what I'm saying is it's all very fine to talk in the abstract at 50,000 or 100,000 feet. Yeah, electrification of everything as people are doing. Rah, 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 electrification. Isn't it wonderful? But they're not coming down to the ground and saying, okay, what do we have to do to do it, to electrify? And that means you need a hell of a lot more electricity. And it doesn't just fall out of the sky from the sun. And so we're going, and by the way, people can go read the Natural Resources Canada website where they actually spell this out. And it's going to not only it's not just the money um, to 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 electrify the Ontario government estimated to completely green the grid is going to be four hundred billion dollars over the next twenty or thirty years. That's just Ontario, and that's just the grid. But if we want to electrify everything, meaning get rid of all the oil, 
and all the gas, natural gas, and all the gasoline, and all the diesel. We're talking gargantuan increases needed in the supply of electricity. And that electricity is going to have to come from a large chunk of it is going to come from nuclear or hydroelectric. And I'm just saying that the societal cost to so many people will say, wait a minute, I don't want a nuclear power plant on the edge of Ottawa or the edge of Hamilton or the edge of Toronto. And then when people start to realize the price we have to pay, and I don't just mean the money price, but the societal price to 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 electrify everything then they're going to have start to have second and third doubts and that's not even talking about the shortage of critical minerals i'm reading in studies that says there's an increasing shortage of copper which is absolutely essential for anything that's electrical and shortages of lithium and as they ramp up demand because as they will electrify more and more things we're going to run into very profound physical shortages of copper and lithium that are absolutely essential to electrify. So I'm not against electrification. I'm just looking at the facts on the ground and saying, I think that hydrogen could become uh, in the next 10 years or so, probably 2030 and beyond, become, it's 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 off to a so start, you know, the, the tortoise and the mm -hmm. hare. It's uh, electric is off to a big fast start, but maybe hydrogen will catch up in the next 10 years and surpass electrification because it doesn't require the same in infrastructural investment because it piggybacks on the oil and gas pipelines that have already been built and they can be used uh, with some modifications in existing uh, infrastructure uh, and i'm I, talking I, the, the the machines that use it exactly well i would like to see that happen i just i'm i'm my my question is not the viability of it nor the the practicality of it my question is the political will and and we'll have to see yes. how that works out ian always a pleasure thank you so much for this today thanks very much bill thanks Take care. Ian Lee, uh, Associate Professor at the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.